This morning we will continue our series through the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. But let's do our little Old Testament history review together. And remember the idea is to try to fill in the blanks with me when I pause um, together and uh, try to do the hand signals if you can. And we'll just do this out loud as we try to kind of get this overview into, into us. So if you're new today, um, feel free to just sit back and, and uh, make fun of the rest of us. Here we go. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us about creation. Chapter 3, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Chapter 5, say it with me, genealogies. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood, like the rainbow. Chapter 10 again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will show you and I will make you a great and mighty nation. I will make your name great and I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So Abraham packed his bags and he and his family went up around the fertile crescent and they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered, I'm going to wait for you every now and then. I'm just going to wait. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? Let's try it one more time. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God didn't wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because 30 more years had passed. They still hadn't had any children. And now they're getting very old. Finally, God kept his promise and gave uh, a son to Abraham and Sarah, who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. If you put your hand up to your ear just now, you uh, followed me very well, but I was really just trying to get you to answer. I'll try to be careful what I do with my hands. Okay. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? Twelve sons, ten fingers, two earlobes. The second youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt. Don't hurt the people next to you. Egypt. Yes where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and the whole family moved down to, again, Egypt for another 30 years, where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died, and then Joseph died. There was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family, which had become very large by this time, so he put them all into bondage for 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out to God, saying, God, get us out of this mess. So God called a man named Moses and told him to go tell Pharaoh to 
let my people go. You got that one. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show his power, and through Moses he unleashed how many plagues? Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take anymore. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and on up to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Let's try that one again. So Moses gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and on up to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve spies who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might need to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants went down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten leaders came back and said, no go. But two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten leaders, and as a group they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you have disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them to a place called Mount Nebo, where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges, God give us a king. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. And the third king was Solomon. They, they ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was sometimes still called Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the South. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. Zero. And there were how many good kings in the south? Eight. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria. Let me say that again. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from where? Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent some people back. How many leaders did they send back that we know about? Three leaders, remember their names? Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, reestablished communication with God, and rebuilt the wall. Remember who did each one of those things? The guy that mostly led rebuilding the temple was Zerubbabel. 
the one who really helped reestablish communication with God especially was Ezra and the one who rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi and he shared his word from the Lord during that time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that there were 400 years of what? Silence from God until John the Baptist burst onto the scene shouting about Jesus Christ saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Great job. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. And this is good to have in our heads as we continue to study the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Now, let's get into today's message. And I'll start with two words. Social justice. Oh, how I wonder what is going through all of your minds right now. These are loaded words in our time, aren't they? And yet, you younger folks might want to know that 20 years ago we had never heard of such a thing. Whatever did we do before social justice was invented? Regardless, these are powerful, opinion-provoking words, but I must be honest that they are also empty words. Wait, what? Yes, I'm afraid so. Empty. See, I'm not sure there is any such thing as social justice. The words social and justice simply do not go together in any meaningful way. In reality, most of what our social culture, also known as society, decides ought to be is anything but just. And most of what society calls justice removes the personal responsibility of an individual, which is foundational to any meaningful understanding of justice. There's nothing social about justice, and there's nothing just about socialism. Wait, social justice goes with socialism? Like a hand in a glove, my friend. And on that point, is it justice to forcibly remove the rightful earnings of one person and give it to someone else for any reason? Isn't that more like stealing? Is that justice? And by whose authority? By what standard of justice should such a thing be done? Shall I make such a decision? Um, some of you in this room have more than others. Should I take your wallet and give it to somebody else who has less? Would that be justice? No, it would be thievery. What is social justice. Is it achieved by protesting the national anthem? Is it gained through the exchange of heated rhetoric on social media? Or even by getting people to vote for the right person so that they can force the majority to take care of some less privileged segment of the population? Can social justice end the evils of racism? Can society fix its own ills? By what standard? By a constantly changing standard. Many people are devoting their lives to promoting social justice as if it were a religion, but can I just tell you something radical? Social justice is not only impossible, but striving for it tends to make matters worse. Why? Because society is made up of humans, if you didn't realize that already. And 
Humans are not just. More to the point, social justice is not at all the kind of justice we Christians are to be about. Social justice is a mirage in the desert with an ever-changing definition, an unreachable destination based on the lies of secular humanism, which tell us that people are basically good and getting better. And that if we can just manipulate or force enough society to be good, socially speaking, we will be able to save everyone from evil and possibly even save the planet. But the Bible says mankind is desperately wicked. The planet is cursed and dying, and that only God can offer justice in either case. Why? Because only God is just, and only God is judge. So am I saying that we Christians should, should not want justice? <laughs> not at all. I'm talking about the only place where we can find it. When it comes to people, where can we find justice? For individuals? Justice is found through Christ in that if you will receive Him by faith, God's justice is already satisfied in your case through His sacrifice on the cross. And when it comes to how we relate to the rest of the world as those who have been justified by faith, we would then be seeking that same justice for everyone by helping them know where to find it in Christ. Yes, followers of Jesus must be about justice. God's justice, biblical justice, which is not based on popular opinion and has never changed. Yes, my friends, we should be about God's justice, biblical justice. But what we are not to pursue is social justice, which, as with all human things, is ultimately evil. Still, before all of you political persons of a particular persuasion, start rejoicing too much in my agreement that social justice is garbage, don't stop listening because we, when it comes to God's justice, the only true justice in the universe, there is some overlap with social justice, at least in practice, though not in principle. For example, in being practitioners of God's justice, we would seek to help the poor. And we would seek to end racism. But we would use our stand, as our standard and as our guide the Word of God rather than the Word of man, which is constantly changing and seldom just. So fellow Christ follower, are you an agent of God's justice? Do you practice biblical justice? Or do you keep all that you have and never significantly help those in need? Is choosing to keep everything to yourself God's kind of justice? No, it is not. In fact, according to God, failure to help the poor is damnable selfishness. The God of justice expects his children to represent him by helping the needy in a responsible way. And he has even said that the more you have, the more you should give. That's God's justice. This is biblical justice, and voluntarily helping the poor is only, is, is only one of many areas where we are to bring about God's kind of justice. If you think about it, bringing about the justice of God on this earth is actually our first priority. It's our mission. 
How is man justified before God? By faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, Romans 5.1. Those of us who've already been justified by faith ought to be helping we ought to be all about helping others receive the same justification from God through faith in His Son who died to serve our sentence. But even beyond this most important and eternal area, as we will see today, we are also to help restore God's justice on earth in many other ways, even in temporal ways. And in so doing, we advance the kingdom of God on earth. Let's read our text. Starting at chapter 2, verse 17. If you're new, we've been just walking through the book of Malachi, and this is where we have arrived. Chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, as I mentioned last week, verse 17 is a pivot point, referring both backward and forward in the text. But as such, this verse actually sets up the rest of the passage and really the rest of the book. Let's look at verse 17 more closely. Malachi writes, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Can you see here that humans are not actually just? We can't even keep straight what is good and what is evil. Meanwhile, we question God as to whether he sees and ask why he hasn't done something. We call for justice, but we don't even know what that will mean. Where is the God of justice? Let's focus in and see how God answers the question. Where is the God of justice? He answers. And notice at the beginning of chapter 3, we're back to direct quotation from God. You recall this is one of the unique characteristics of Malachi. It's the reason for the title of this series. And so here again, verse 1 of chapter 3, God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. This would seem to be a prophetic reference to John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. We'll talk about this again later in the series when we get to chapter 4, but more importantly, right after this, God announces the coming of the main event and the main character who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading on, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now we need to pause and understand that what we just read are words of hope to the original audience and to us. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight refers to the Lord, the Messiah, Christ, who will come to his temple. Whose temple? God's temple. See, this is one of those places, even in the Old Testament, where we see it's clear that the Messiah to come is also God. The Lord, who is the messenger of the covenant, who is coming, is Jesus Christ, the Savior, for whom these beleaguered people have been waiting. And he is coming to his own temple. The people have been seeking him, as it says, for the sake of justice for themselves. This is their unspoken cry and asking for the God of justice. Where, oh, where is this Savior whom we've heard so much about? David told us about him. Isaiah and Jeremiah told us about him. All the prophets have at least alluded to his coming. Where is he? We need him now. Based on the phrase, in whom you delight, I do not believe the question, where is the God of justice, is meant to be sarcastic. I believe a remnant of the priests and the people are still delighting in or hoping for this long-awaited Savior and that at this point they're absolutely hearing what they long to hear in God's answer. That is that the promised one, the messenger of the covenant, would indeed come soon to bring the justice they felt they deserved. In our own trying times, in a world that has gone crazy around us, we too can hear these words with hope, so much hope. The God of justice is coming. Hear this. The only true hope we have for justice on this earth is in the coming of Jesus Christ. And indeed, at, at his second coming, God's justice will be absolute and complete. But notice also that immediately following these words of hope, Malachi pulls them back in verse 2 saying, But who can endure? The day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller slope. Aha, so God is saying, are you sure that you're actually ready for my justice? Now you might ask, what is fuller soap? And for that matter, what is a fuller? Well, a little research will tell you that fulling, which is also known as tucking or walking, is part of the process involved in making cloth from wool. Fulling uses alkali soap to cleanse the wool of oils, dirt, and other impurities, also making it thicker. The worker who does this job is called a fuller, a tucker, or a walker, all of which have become common English surnames, as you know. Now, spiritually speaking, what is God talking about? He is talking about separating dirt from wool, chaff from wheat, dross from silver, goats from sheep, sinners from saints. He's talking about a process that will basically determine who will stand and who will fall. In other words, the coming of Christ will be great for those who are the remnant and absolutely horrible for everybody else. This is the nature of justice. It removes the bad from the good. Who will be able to endure his coming? We know from the New Testament that the determining factor between good and bad or as to whether Christ's coming will be saving or damning for any particular person is faith. 
in what the Savior Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Throughout the Bible, we see that faith is the only path to righteousness before God. Not works, not being good, just faith. Take note that this actually proved true in the first coming of Christ, but it will be even more suddenly and permanently true in His second coming. Reading on in verse 3, He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. Who? This messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Notice again that God will begin with the spiritual leaders. Gulp. The sons of Levi, that is, at that time, the priests. And if you've studied the New Testament at all, you know Jesus hit the priest the hardest while he was here. Where did the purification begin? To whom were words of justice first uttered? Where did Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, apply his fuller soap? Who did he call whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones? Who did he judge most harshly? The Pharisees and Sadducees who were the closest thing left to sons of Levi. He applied justice to the rabbis and the spiritual leaders at that time. These were the ones Jesus judged first and foremost. And yet, if you read further in the New Testament, you will find that some of these priests endured and wound up believing in Jesus as Messiah. Yes, some of the spiritual leaders made it through the purifying process of the God of justice because they believed in Jesus. People like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and the Apostle Paul. And so just as Malachi had prophesied, the body of priests and spiritual leaders found purification through the justice of Christ when he came, but only a remnant made it through the smelting process. Only those who left their empty religiosity behind and became like pure silver and gold as they gave their lives to Christ. For them, God's justice meant salvation through faith. But for the majority, God's justice meant condemnation for their unbelief. And what were the results of the justification of this remnant? Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Remember in our study earlier in the book, worship had become defiled because it was led by spiritual leaders and worshipers who were heartless, faithless, and impure. All of their vain religiosity had become empty and offensive to the Lord. Here God promises that when He comes in Christ, worship will change and once again be pleasing to Him. This is how the God of justice brings about His justice. You see, he makes things right by removing the wrong. And we know that worship did change in many ways with the first coming of Christ and the institution of his church. Everything changed. We also believe that worship will ultimately be perfected in the second coming of Christ for all eternity. So how do we sum up all of this into a point? What is God's first answer to the question, where is the God of justice? Simply put, He is coming in Christ. Where is the God of justice? Number one, He is coming in Christ. Make no mistake, you who might question the reality of a God of justice, He is coming. And when He does, there will be justice. The question is, who can endure His coming? 
Now, from the perspective of Malachi's audience, Jesus had not yet come the first time. But from our perspective, the first coming already happened. We're in a partial fulfillment of this prophecy has already occurred. However, we wait for the second coming when God's justice will be completely and utterly fulfilled. So, we wait. And perhaps sometimes our question is, why not now? We find an answer in such places as 2 Peter 3.9 where God says He's not slow concerning His promise to return, but continues to be patient, not willing to let go of the souls of men and women who He loves, giving them more time to repent and believe. God does not want to see people be washed out of the wool. He does not want to be, uh, he, he doesn't want people to be burned away with the dross. No, before pouring out His justice, God longs for more of the people He loves to surrender to His Savior, receiving justification by faith as a result of grace before it is too late. So again, let me try to summarize what all this really means. The people ask the question, where is the God of justice? A question many are asking again today. And for all times, God Himself answers the question with these words, I am coming. But He also says to them and now to us, will that be good for you or bad for you? We, like the people of Judah, sometimes rail about the unfairness of this life, don't we? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do people get away with murder? Why does God allow the innocent to suffer? Where is the God of justice? The answer is that He is coming. But don't miss the follow-up question, which is this. Will you be ready? When the God of justice comes, what will it mean for you? Will you be judged as an evildoer? Or will you be covered by the blood of Jesus? Already forgiven, purified, and cleansed by grace through faith in Him. If you're not sure, I would urge you to repent and believe before it is too late. But God's not finished answering the question. He has been asked, where is the God of justice? Secondly, He is represented in His remnant. Here in verse 5, God determines or God defines His remnant by what it is not. An interesting technique. Generally speaking, we can see from the following verses that those who belong to the God of justice are also His agents of justice. Did you hear that? If, you're, if you belong to the God of justice, then you'll be an agent of His justice on earth. And that, you see, that rules out those who are actually agents of injustice. In other words, those who are not just prove they are not His. Let's read the verse, and I'll show you what I mean. God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, here are six unjust behaviors. God is essentially saying that those who live like this are not just and are therefore proving that they are not His representatives. And since we're talking about justice, God takes us to His courtroom saying that He will be a swift witness against those who, out of a lack of fear or reverence for Him, behave in these ways. As in English, 
In the original Hebrew, the word translated as judgment is the same root word as the word for justice. In other words, it is as if God is saying, you want justice? Okay, prepare to be judged. See, their call for the God of justice backfires as God pronounces judgment on them rather than others who they thought were so bad. They had been self-righteous in their call for justice, and they were about to find out how wrong they had been. Let's briefly look at each of these pronouncements and remember that God is talking to people who are supposed to be His children, people who claim the name of God. Projecting forward into our context, they were Christians like us, or we could at least say they were our spiritual forefathers and mothers, or some were proving perhaps they were not. So the point is not only that these are bad behaviors, but more that these are ways in which the God of justice is being misrepresented as unjust by the very ones who are supposed to represent as justice to the world. Again, God defines His faithful remnant here by what they are not. So if you are taking notes, above the first blank in your listening guide, write in the word not. Those in God's remnant are not sorcerers. Some translations will say those who practice witchcraft, and the idea is the same. In the Old Testament, the punishment for this sin was death. Sorcery was associated with such practices as divination, trying to contact the dead, casting spells, and generally trying to gain supernatural powers that belong only to God. The New Testament also condemns sorcery in many places, listing it among sins that are particularly heinous in the eyes of God. But why is sorcery such a big deal? What does it hurt, really? I mean, is it even real? Well, I believe sorcery or witchcraft is especially offensive to God because it is basically an attempt to manipulate the spiritual realm in our own strength, which is a form of idolatry. If we can manipulate the spiritual realm, our need for God becomes less. In, in practices like sorcery, we're seeking a substitute for God. Again, idolatry. Those who are called to represent God's justice to this world do not mess around with mystical practices like sorcery. Now, at this point, many preachers would uh, grasp at straws, in my view, to try to find a way for real people in the typical congregation to find application. They might tell you, for instance, that you should not even read a book or watch a movie that contains someone who is practicing sorcery in a make-believe kind of way. Personally, I think that's a bit legalistic. Now, it's not legalistic to set such a standard for yourself or for your family, if you so choose. That might even be admirable. But to try to tell other people that they ought to draw a line in a place that's beyond what Scripture actually says, that is legalism. What Scripture condemns here is the practice of sorcery. And I'm not sure we need to try to take it any further than that. Personally, I love a good fairy tale. And yet I think I can honestly say that I have never practiced sorcery in my life. Secondly, God specifically calls out adulterers. Of all the unjust behaviors listed here, adultery may do the most damage, both to people and the reputation of God. We all know adultery is bad, but oh, how we have watered down this sin. 
with our false teaching that all sin is the same to God. No, that is simply not true. All sin is equally damning, but all sin is not equally harmful. And God is not blind to that reality. In fact, adultery was one of 16 capital crimes in ancient Israel. That is to say, it was punishable by death. And God is the one who made it so. If you want to be blown away by how God sees this sin, read Job 31, 11 through 12, where God calls adultery a destructive, hellish fire that consumes everything you have. Adultery severely misrepresents the justice of God. Third, God calls out perjurers, those who swear falsely. It's a reference to the kind of deception that means the wrong person is judged guilty in a court of law, like perjury. That because of your dishonesty, dis- justice is not served in the case of another person. Maybe you've torn them down in, in a way that has people thinking of them and worse off than they are. The idea is that those who contribute to a lack of justice through deceit misrepresent the God of justice. I also think this can refer to just simply a lack of trustworthiness. We all, you know, which, which all of that, anything, lying, deceit, anything, it leads to just injustice for someone. Somebody gets the shaft on that deal, you know, if you're not being truthful. Um, if I fail to follow through on, on a commitment, that type of thing, on a contract. I, I misrepresent the justice of God through deceit, through, through swearing falsely, through making commitments that I don't keep. God's justice is maligned if I supposedly mis, if I represent him. Fourth, God mentions those who oppress the wage earner. I believe God values hard work and hard workers. And God wants hard workers to receive in full what they have earned. Often in Malachi's day, wage earners might be exploited by landowners or rich guys who who did not treat them fairly because in their desperation, these workers had to just take whatever they could get in order to provide for their families. Uh, uh, Historically, God gets very put out. In the Bible, God gets very put out when the rich oppress the poor, especially those who work for them. Of course, there's always the question of what exactly is fair. And that plays into how we're to represent God. One thing that's clear is that we must not treat one wage earner unjustly in order to bring about so-called justice to another. This is one of the reasons why socialism or communism does not represent the justice of God. So more practically, how is the wage earner oppressed today? Well, this would be something to think about if you have employees, right? Business owners or decision makers should take this verse to heart. Churches too. Anyone who employs wage earners should make sure no one is being oppressed in any way. In fact, as we think about the lavish grace of God that he's poured out on us, we wouldn't want to even get close to oppression, right? We, how can we represent the justice of God to wage earners is what we're asking here. I'll tell you that I have a special place in my heart for the working poor. And I think this is true of God as well. And what about everyday situations like tipping waiters and waitresses? Some of you would give a $20 bill to a panhandler who's probably going to go spend it on drugs or alcohol or hand it to whoever it is handling them. But you tip your server 10%. 
on a good day. I'd encourage you to make your tips 20%, which is what I've done for years. At least your waiter or waitress is working for a living, right? Why not bless them for it? And if somebody mows your lawn, cleans your house, pay them more than the going rate. Why not? At the very least, make sure you are not oppressing the wage earner because that fails to accurately represent the God of justice. Fifth, God says His justice is misrepresented by those who oppress the widow and orphan. What did the Lord have in mind with this? Were the people really out there picking fights with widows and orphans? I don't think so. I think what he had in mind is that if widows and orphans did not receive help from the people, it was the same as oppression. They were utterly dependent on grace because they had been robbed of the natural support that most people enjoy within their families. The idea was that if others did not take the responsibility to help them, these people had little hope. And so in this case, simply not helping was oppression. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sure many of you remember the verse in James that says, True religion, that which is pleasing and acceptable to God, takes care of orphans and widows in their distress. And by the way, I think both references are representative, not exhaustive. The idea is helping anyone who earnestly needs help due to no fault of their own. I'll say that when it comes to helping orphans, some are led to adopt or to foster care, which is something I respect probably more than anything else anyone ever does. But really, all of us should look for ways to be involved in helping orphans and widows and anybody who's in need, particularly due to a situation outside their control. When we help people like that, we represent the God of justice to the world. When we don't, we don't. Last, our text calls out those who turn aside the alien. In case it isn't obvious, we're not talking about extraterrestrials here. So who are we talking about? They're talking about immigrants. Not incidentally, the Bible frequently lumps widows, orphans, and immigrants together as examples of people who often are desperate for a helping hand. And notice that God doesn't say stupid things like, well, why don't they just go home then? Does he? Does he? No, instead, God sees their sojourn as an opportunity for his people to represent his justice by meeting their needs. Listen and hear me now. The mission field has come to us. We are called to take the gospel to all nations. God has brought them to our door. Don't you dare tell them to go home. That is not a biblical worldview. If they are here, if they are here, they should not be turned aside, not by God's people. No way. In fact, the Bible is absolutely full of verses commanding us to treat immigrants with special care and concern. One of many examples, besides the one in our text today, is Leviticus 19.33, where God says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I do believe some of you may need to let Scripture change your thinking on this topic. And friend, if you're so committed to a party platform that you can't see where it may be biblically wrong, you have a big problem as a follower of Jesus. And for those who would try to say this only applied to Israel, 
because of their sojourn in Egypt, I would remind you that the New Testament often refers to Christians as aliens and sojourners in this world, not as citizens of one geopolitical nation or another. And so the same principle applies to the church as it did to Israel. Like them, we are aliens in this world, and so we are to treat the aliens in our land as we would want to be treated. If we would represent the God of justice, we will love them as we love ourselves. Now, in case someone thinks I am unaware, I will say that I know our government needs to fix the broken immigration system, and I agree we need to secure our borders so that we know who's coming in for our own security in an age of terrorism, and yes, we need to reform our unjust, socialistic, dependency-causing welfare system. I agree with all that. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what God is interested in is not so much what government chooses to do about immigrants, but more about what you and I choose to do in our daily lives as we come across immigrants just trying to make it through life, which should be to open our arms and help them rather than to turn them away. Now look at the end of verse 5. And those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, This applies to the whole section. God says the reason people do all these unjust things is because they do not fear Him. But why do I word this in the positive to say that God, the God of justice is represented in His remnant? I put it that way because we know from the whole of Scripture that there is always a remnant. And by telling us who is not the remnant through this list of unjust practices, God is also telling us that there really is a remnant of people who represent God's justice on this earth. Remember this, there is always a remnant. And that remnant actually does a pretty good job of representing the God of justice. Thank God for the remnant, among which I certainly hope and pray we are included. Listen, God's remnant of true believers does an enormous amount of good in this world. There is always a remnant working to restore God's justice. This fact is actually quite encouraging. So don't you want to make the list of those who represent the justice of God on this earth? I do. We're not all sorcerers. (laughs) We're not all adulterers. Or perjurers. We do not all turn away widows and orphans and immigrants. Frankly, some of God's people actually represent His justice pretty well. Thank God this is true. We don't need to be fatalistic about Christianity. Even in an age when so much of Christianity is way off base, some of us can represent the God of justice, right? What a privilege. The question is, are you part of this remnant or are you one of those who is in danger of judgment? when he comes. And what if you must admit that you've been misrepresenting the God of justice in some ways? See, that's where the good news comes in. You can join the remnant through repentance and and a faith commitment to Christ, whether it be the first time or in the sense of renewing that commitment. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And he will receive you as his own. Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant referred to in our text. And that covenant is the promise of salvation, which was made available on the cross by his first coming. Now, by grace through faith in Jesus, you can be eternally justified by the God of justice. And as you learn to follow him, you will live as one of the remnant who represents his justice to the world.
This takes us to the final verse that we'll cover today. And the third way that the God of justice is revealed. Where is the God of justice? Number three, he is constant in his covenant. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. As we've been reading through the book of Malachi, we've found that apparently these folks in the original audience are wrong about a lot of things, right? So the question can be asked, if these people are misrepresenting God so badly, why hasn't he wiped them out? Why are they not consumed? Maybe we could even ask the same question of Christianity today. Why are we not consumed? Or are we so much better? The reason both they and we are not consumed boils down to the unchanging nature of God, which is specifically seen here in the continuation of His covenant, even though we do not keep our end of the deal. God says, I do not change. And then in calling them sons of Jacob, He reminds them and us of the covenant He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, an everlasting covenant from which even we now benefit. God's promises for His people endure for eternity. We are His people, if indeed we have faith in God, the God of Jacob, whose name is Yahweh, and who also came in Christ as the promised Messiah. Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and His covenant is ours if, in fact, we are His people. The point is that because our God does not change and because He keeps His promises, there's still time for repentance where it is needed. His covenant is still before us. In the very next verse, God says, return to me and I will return to you. See, his covenant offer to mankind has never changed and it's always on the table. It's always on the table. It's on the table in front of some of you right now, even thousands of years after this was written, because God never changes. How does this reveal God's justice? How does this answer the question, where is the God of justice? Well, the answer is he never left. He never moved. He's still there, and he's still completely just, and he always has been. God is constant in his covenant, and in fact, this is his definition of justice, his unchanging character. God is just. Justice is God, and this is true eternally because he does not change. See, this is one of the marks of justice. True justice is always justice. If we try to say that what was once unjust is now just, we missed the definition of justice. Justice not colloquial or cultural or seasonal or, or by current consensus. No, never. Justice never changes because God never changes. God is constant in His covenant, and this is because He is just. Where is the God of justice? Where can we find this God? Find Him in His covenant, His promise. His promise that no matter who you are, or what you have done, you can become a part of his family through faith in Christ. Why? Because as creator and judge of the universe, God declared that placing himself on a cross, a punitive cross, would be enough to pay the price for your sins. The cross was always enough. It was already enough for the people of Malachi's time. It's still enough in our time. God is constant in his covenant, and that covenant says that his justice has already been satisfied. Those who receive his justice by grace through faith are made just before him and thus are saved. The big question today is this, where is the God of justice? When God answers that question for us in his word, he's coming in Christ. He is represented in his remnant. He is constant in his covenant. But I want to bring this home a little bit more. I just have a little bit more. It's like the end of the Lord of the Rings where you think it's over 
There's just a little bit more because I, I want to bring this home to you personally. Where is the God of justice when it comes to you personally? Where is he? Where do you stand with the God of justice? Have you been justified by the God of justice? How can I be? How can I be, you say? By actively choosing to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And how do I know this? Well, listen to how the Bible puts it. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, talking to people who have already done this, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Basically, the hope of heaven. Home with Him. You can have peace with God today if you will simply humble yourself enough to put your faith all in on Jesus. You can be justified by the God of justice today. Would you be willing to surrender to a God who loves you and gave Himself for you? Serving your sentence and judging Himself in your place. Would you receive such a gift? It's an amazing thing about gifts. You have to receive them. So many people would say they believe God did these things. They see that gift. I see that gift. I, yeah, I, Jesus died on the cross for me. And yada, yada. They see this gift. They, they, they recognize it intellectually that there's a gift that's being held out in front of them. But it's not theirs until they receive it. Uh, whatever you, wherever you want to go with your theological arguments, you've got to receive it by faith. So many people are so close yet so far away. Would you pray with me? If today you want to receive the gift of salvation, justification from the God of justice, you could pray something like this with me. God, I come helpless. I know I can't be good enough. I know that I have sinned. I've, I've done things, thought things, been wrong about things. I've not listened to you. I've, I've gone my own way. And I want to turn away from that today. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe you're offering me this gift this forgiveness, this justification. I believe that he died for my sin and he rose again because he was God. But then now he's offering me eternal life. I believe all that. I, I, I just, but today, I want to receive that. I, I want that to be applied to me. I want you to apply it to me today. God. Save me. I, I just throw myself at your, at your mercy. I know I can't make myself good enough. I'll accept Jesus to do that. If you prayed that prayer or something like it, and really it's not about the prayer. It's about a moment of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If that happened for you today, I hope you'll let us know because that's just the beginning. It's the beginning of awesome. Let me know. Let one of our pastors know so we can help you think about what might be next.
And in Jesus' name, I pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.